This is Nightmares of the Americas, Indigenous Tales. The show will start in three, two, one. Welcome, everybody, to Nightmares of the Americas, Indigenous Tales. I'm Joseph. And I am Gabriel. I am stuffed. <laughs> we went to a Mexican restaurant. LMB's, the best Mexican food ever. Hands down. Ever. You invited me and the family for breakfast, and then we showed up, and we we shut the place down. We were just like, I want this, I want this, I want this, a little bit of that. <laughs> Yeah, I, I got too much food, and then I Delicious. took it home, and I said, don't look at my box. That's mine. <laughs> That's right. I put a bunch of hot sauce on it. They have, like, a super hot hot sauce that just blows people away. They don't even bring it to your table. You got to specially ask for it. Yeah. But they know me, so every time I come in, she looks at me and smiles and pr- brings out the big can of hot sauce, and I'm all, <laughs> yes, ma'am. Got it. Yeah, highly recommended. Yeah. Delicious. Anyway, so now that we're all we're all fat and sassy. <laughs> <laughs> Man, it's a beautiful day. It's starting to heat up a little bit in California. If you guys live in this area, man, it's uh it's gonna be a scorcher, 107. Time to yeah. get in those in those speedos and jump in the swimming pool. Mm-hmm. Be safe out there. If you're working in the sun like us. We gotta make sure we don't have heat stroke. Yeah, stay hydrated, stay some stay yeah, stay safe. Be hydrated, make sure you got some electrolytes. Mm-hmm. And then you could say Sinaket Nashek Saksi, because it'll be a beautiful day. <laughs> Definitely. It will be, I promise. So, please follow us on all of the all of your major podcasting platforms, Nightmares of the Americas, Indigenous Tales. You know who we are. We're there. See? Yeah. And then if you want a free sticker, all you have to do is go to one of those platforms and then just follow us. Just, just a little clicky. Follow us right there. Leave a review. Take a screenshot of that a review. Send it to info at behillnetwork.com with your mailing address and your alias, and then we'll shoot you out a free sticker. It's simple as that. Free. You don't have to pay for anything. We send it. So if you do get those stickers and you, and you slap it somewhere and you want us to give you a shout out, just post a picture and go any of your social media things, indigenous underscore tales, and we will we'll tag you or, I don't know, say hi to you. Something. We've had people yeah. do that. So it's pretty yeah, cool. Yeah. We, we want to see that you receive the stickers. Show them off. For sure. If you want any of uh, our sweet swag, you go to indigenoustales.threadless.com and check out some of our designs. We haven't posted any new updated designs, but I'm sure we have some in the works. Yeah, we do. Just to get them out there. I have a couple of ideas too. So we'll, we'll, we'll post those sporadically on our Instagram and TikTok so you guys could check them out. Also, we have YouTube. Remember, Gabe's posting short clips on YouTube just to give people, you know, a little, little tasty treat of what we're about. And mm-hmm. then you go listen to the full episode on Apple, Spotify, whatever your podcast preference is. Short, little short and sweet intro today as we're <laughs> trying to get this thing locked and loaded and ready to go. Yeah. Oh, I did see this post someone tagged us in, just a little side note on Instagram. And it uh-huh. was, uh, um, it said, women don't want alpha males. They want a goofy goober. And it said, it made <laughs> us think of indigenous tales. Uh, oh, um, man. And uh, then they tagged me and you. Uh, they put at us on Instagram. And I started laughing when I saw that. It was pretty awesome. We're a pro goober podcast. Pro goober. And if you can't have goobers, I'm sorry. You don't know you're missing out. Don't try them, though, because you go straight to the doctor. No, we don't want you to don't do a second die. Yeah. Have your EpiPen ready if you're around goobers. Mm-hmm. And I'm sorry, but they're delicious. <laughs> They I love them. We ate like two bags at Maddie's softball game. Oh, yeah. We were just we, we chowing down. Uh, so that was a little side note. But anyway, let's get into the show. Yeah. A number of tribes believe in the Thunderbird, 
The flapping of its wings caused thunder, and it's capable of hurling lightning bolts from its eyes or even talons, or from lightning serpents that it uses as weapons. The Thunderbird is an ancestor of the Namgis clan of the Kaka Kewaka people, who say that thunder claps when he ruffled his feathers and lightning flashes when he blinks. Long ago, Thunderbird flew out of the heavens to assist a man who had been transformed into an halibut. When he finished helping, Thunderbird removed his headdress and winged cape and became human. During winter potlatch ceremonies, the wearer of the mask opens and shuts his beak, revealing the human form within. That's interesting. Yeah, so that's a, we're talking about Thunderbirds. Thunderbirds! I know, we, we wanted to save this to like when we are established, because yeah. there's a whole bunch of cool ones, and I'm like, let's wait, let's wait. <laughs> let's wait yeah let's we wanted it we almost did it a few times earlier but we wanted to save it but we're doing it now the thunderbird that always reminds me of what was that uh the crudes the thunder sisters oh yeah <laughs> yeah <laughs> i think i don't know which one's my favorite the first one or the second one just because they do stupid things like that it's pretty funny yeah. or is that the third one i don't even know which one it is i don't know we're talking about the kaka k walk people kakakewak people it's uh hard to pronounce for me because i'm you know not native in that tongue <laughs> so they're having a very a big resurgence right now in their language and their culture they're trying to to get the younger people more involved and build back their nation which is really amazing because a lot of other tribes are doing the same thing like they, we're having this really ama- there's this really awesome time to be alive and to be native because everyone wants to their culture back and right. we're living in this time where you can talk we, we've all moved out you know, moved around throughout the U.S., throughout Canada, throughout uh, Mesoamerica, South America. We, we're, we're all over the place because you could travel like crazy and people just moved out and live in different places. But you're able to stay in contact with your family and your people through the Internet and everything else. So we're having this big, huge reinsurgence with these people. And the cool thing is, is that they have their language all written out. So they have an alphabet and they could teach you there's uh, there was all these classes on youtube that i was watching and it's just little tiny cl- courses and they teach you how to say the language the right way and they have elders saying it the right way and they have it phonetically broken down this one went over the structure of the voice which was really awesome how mm. to say it and what part of your mouth to use when you say those types of syllables okay. so they went into crazy detail so it was really cool but so i try i listened to it i'm trying to say it the right way um so bear with me. And if you guys, we have had emails correcting us on how to say, pronounce certain things, mm-hmm. please feel free to email us at info at and correct us because this is not our language and we want to say it the right way. Um, but you guys know as, as well as we do, you could go on the internet and search everything you can about a word and there'll be 13 different ways. And then you kind of just take the the most, you know, I think this is the most common answer. So we're going to say it this way, yeah. but then it turns out none of them are those people. <laughs> and they're like, nah, that's not how you say it. We're like, yeah, oh, we, darn it. We'd rather but, hear from somebody who's a part of the culture correcting us. So we do appreciate that guys. So please yeah. keep, keep those emails coming. So we're going to talk about the Kakakewak people. We're not going to talk about all the clans. Cause there's, from what I read, there's between 13 and 18 different clans. So oh, it's a lot. I, I, yeah, we don't have enough time to get into all the clans, but in, I'm going to talk about a generalization of these people and future episodes, we're going to start breaking down clans and stuff. And we're going to go into detail about certain clans mm-hmm. and not go over the whole entire um, history and all that stuff. We're just going to talk about culture specifically and then cultural beliefs. Okay. 
the people are called Kwakwa Kwak, also known as Kwakut. I what I was reading is that they use this they, that was like a bastardized version of the word. So because they couldn't pronounce what it what their actual name was, they the Europeans Okay. They they started calling them Kwa, it's K W A K I U T L. And they started calling them that in, 19, in 1894 because they started doing a lot of trading with the with the fur traders and the trappings and they started doing all that stuff. So when they mm-hmm. came over, these people are, are in um British Columbia. So okay. they're in the Pacific Northwest Coast of North America and primarily live in Vancouver Islands and the mainland to Brit- of British Columbia, Canada. So we're talking about you, Canada. This is native. We're still in Native American History Month. So we're going to go ahead and, and shoot up to the we did our Mesoamerica series and now we're shooting up to Canada. Yeah. Our brothers and sisters up there. And hopefully you guys have have just enjoyed this entire month celebrating your culture and maybe hopefully got a lot of information to other people and they could see what has been going on with you and hopefully had a little understanding of what we've been through and what you guys have been through and everything else. Yeah, definitely. So they have a long history of inhabiting their ancestral territories, which encompass a vast area of forests, rivers, and coastlines. They've inhabited their ancestral territories along the Northwest coast, for thousands of years in their oral history. And there's also architectural evidence to suggest that they've been there for over 4,000 years. Wow. So they're, they're a really old tribe mm-hmm. or old people. And that's just in that area. They live there for 4,000 years. That doesn't mean they've only been around for 4,000 years. No, that's just that area that they've resided right, in yeah. for 4,000 years. <laughs> they were active participants in the extensive trade networks along the Northwest coast. They traded valuable resources, resources such as cedar shells, furs, artworks with native indigenous groups. And they established a social and economical connection with these groups and later with Europeans. So in the late 18th century, European explorers and traders, including this one guy, Captain Jack Cook, and fur traders from England, Russia, and the U.S. began arriving in that region. And the introduction of European diseases kind of devastated the population, leading to a huge decline. Tale as old as time, right? This is kind of what's been going on, what we've been talking about. The arrival of European settlers and the establishment of colonial power in the 19th century has profound effects of the people. The imposition of colonial policies such as land encroachment, forced assimilation, and the banning of cultural practices threatened their traditional way of life and led to a significant cultural disruption, which they're, they're taking it back. I'll, I will go in a little later on how what bands were in place because they actually had cultural bands where they couldn't celebrate, so they couldn't have certain ceremonies. Wow. Can you believe that? That's uh, insane. A, a group of people come over to your place and then go, guess what? We know you're practicing a ceremony. Nah, not today <laughs> or ever. You're not allowed to. That's so and dumb. then we're going to erase your history. It's yeah. it's so awful. Even just to think when you talk, when I talk to people about stuff like this, they, they usually say like, man, I knew it was bad, but I didn't know that the government did this much like damage. And I'm like, what have we been saying this whole time? Yeah, we don't believe. No, don't trust the government. None of you guys don't trust them. They're not in. They don't have your best interests at heart. All they care about is themselves staying in power and political control, whatever political party affiliate. They all just want to stay in control and they don't care about you because it's the greater good, quote unquote, for their country, not your Mm -hmm. country, for their country. Yeah. All the decimation and everything that's happened to these people. 
in recent decades of just over like 20 years, 25, 30 years, there's been a strong revitalization of their cultural practices, language, traditional knowledge, and efforts have been made to pass the cultural teachings to younger generations. And they've also been reclaiming ancestral land and they uh, asserted a self-governance. Let's talk about the ceremony that is called pot Latch. What they're known for is their renowned and elaborate potlatch ceremonies, which are important social, social and cultural festival. It involves feasting, gift giving, dancing, performances that showcase the wealth and status of the host. They serve as a uh, as a means of redistributing wealth, maintaining social connections, and preserving cultural heritage. In the late 19th and 20th centuries, the Canadian and U.S. government. They attempted to suppress potlatch ceremonies through legislation bans. These bans were motivated by colonial policies aimed to eradicating indigenous cultural practices. However, despite the bans, many communities secretly held these traditions, preserving their culture. That's what I mean when the government, they straight just told them, nope, you're not going to practice this. Yeah, it's so horrible. Yeah, even though it's like it makes you who you are and it's something that is very important to you. Yeah, we're trying to, what do you say? Um, what was that one quote? Something, save the man, kill the Indian? Yeah. Is that what it was? Mm-hmm. It's something, it's it's the same concept. It's just, we don't want that, we don't want the Indian. So we're going to kill their culture. Yeah. This is what one, one elder had to say about the potlatch ceremony. Many people believe that a rich and powerful person is someone who has a lot. The people who speak Kwa Kwa Allah, which is their, that's their language. That's so there's like 18 different bands of the same tribe, but they call them, it's all part of the same language group, which is this Kwa Kwa La. Okay. The Kwa Kwa Ki Wa believe that a rich and powerful person is someone who gives the most away. Since a time beyond memory, the people have been hosting potlatches and potlatching continues to play a central and unifying role in the community life today. The word potlatch means to give and comes from a trade jargon Chinook formerly used along the Pacific coast of Canada. So another tribe used this term and then it kind of just, it just became the term for what this festival is. Guests witnessing the events are given gifts. The more gifts given, the higher the status achieved by the potlatch host. The potlatch ceremony marks important occasions in the lives of the people. The name of children, marriages, transferring rights of privileges, and mourning the dead. It is a time of pride, a time to show the masks and dance owned by the chiefs and hosts giving the potlatch. It is a time of joy when one's heart is glad. He gives away gifts. Our creator gave it to us to be our way of doing things, to be our own way of rejoicing. We are given who we are. Everyone on earth is given something. The potlatch was given to us to bear our way of expressing joy. And this was by Elder Agnes Ahu Alfred. Wow. So he talks about the people thinking who, like like he said, a lot of people believe that when you're rich and powerful, mm-hmm. rich and wealth is, well, it's, it's what you have. It's, it's possessions. Yeah, the more stuff you have, they're like, oh, look at them. They got everything figured out. Oh man, he has a brand new Subaru and he's, uh, he's, he's whipping the trails. I wish I had a brand new Subaru whipping the trails. Got a little Subi, bro. Subi, bro. Yeah. Subi, bro. I mean, that's what people think. People think about this stuff. Well, not, you know, he said his people, they believe that to have wealth means to give. So that's why I said, this is like a redistribution of, mm-hmm. we distrib- 
redistribution of wealth. I don't know. I can't say that word today. My all <laughs> tongue tied. I got a uh, Mexican tongue. Was a Mexican food tongue right now? Yeah. <laughs> Still have all the flavors on it. And they believe that giving is is a sign of wealth. So when they get all these gifts, then the main, then the chief or whoever's holding the ceremony, they they re give out all these um, all these things. And we'll go over to what they what they give in a minute. So it's a ceremony that characterized by feasting, gift giving, dances, speeches, and performances. They use it to publicly recognize class structure and status, to pass on a family's rights and privileges or inheritances, such as rights include rights to land, property, fishing holes, berry patches, hunting grounds, and beachfronts. They use it to recognize when they're passing on privileges to other family members. Mm-hmm. such as those things, the right to specific dances, songs, stories, the rights to display animal crest designs on a family's clan, the right to wear, use, and display certain regalia and objects that indicate leadership, such as hats, blankets, dance aprons, carved branches, shield-shaped copper plaques, masks, painted house fronts, and carved posts. So mm-hmm. this they use the ceremony to to pass the family rights or if it's inheritance, like, Hey, you know, you could go, this is our berry patch. So you could go, you could go in that berry patch. Now before you couldn't do it now, but now we're going to pass it down through the traditional way and show what you, you, and let you know what your rights are and what you can do for the family and through the clan and all that stuff. Right. They also use it, like I said, to celebrate marriages, um, the naming of babies and the passing on of chief titles, names held within a family and names that indicate leadership Wow! to honor important people who have passed on or to comfort those who have lost loved ones to celebrate the opening of ceremonial big houses, raising of carved poles to recognize lineage of a family and renew the community ties to the ancestors to celebrate the people's relationships to the animal spirits and to give thanks to restore one's reputation in the community after humiliation so you see why this is so important to their culture. It they use this um potlatch ceremony to do everything. Yeah. It's if someone has a baby, we're going to have a ceremony. If mm-hmm. someone dies, we're going to have a ceremony. Well, after they died, then uh people are sad because they have lost loved ones. We're going to have a ceremony. <laughs> we're going um this is just a way for everyone to get together, exchange gifts, um exchange different um, titles, culture, mm-hmm. everything. This is huge. So you can understand why the U.S. government and Canadian government were like, if we go after this specifically, because they have other ceremonies too, but if we go after this specifically, it's kind of like well, the guess root, what? root of it all. You cut, you, you cut the snake off by the head. Yeah. Just take away their culture. They don't know who they are. And then um, have, them, have them dependent on us. Because if – I don't know about you guys, but I don't want to be dependent on the government – no, definitely not. Because the second you're be- dependent on the government, you're beholden to the government. So that means they could control anything you have mm-hmm. and say or do or anything like that. And it's not a not a good time. It's pretty scary. <laughs> yeah. So a long time ago, like what the records show that they have um, the potlatch is stretched out over the winter months, lasting for weeks. So it wasn't just like a day event. No, these were week events. Cool. They were held in a ceremonial big house the size of which indicated the host status in the village. The chiefs had the largest big house. They would invite hundreds of guests from many first nations. Oh, wow. I know you're like, Oh, a ceremony. And some people might think, okay, they're going to have like, yeah, like little few family members here or there. I don't know. Hundreds in a house. 
So this was yeah. when they say big house. Oh, it was a big house. It's a big old house. <laughs> Guests would travel to the potlatch by canoe and upon ar- arrival announce themselves and their village by shouting to the hosts on shore. Giant welcome figures carved out of cedar often stood at the water's edge as hosts sang welcome songs. Sometimes there were so many guests that there wasn't even any, any room on the beaches for all the canoes. So they had to stack canoes because there was that many guests on the that were co- that were coming from other villages. Gifts that were given in like around the 1800s included animal furs and hides, carved bentwood boxes, which have you seen those bentwood boxes that they have? I think I have. Oh my gosh, they're so they're they're uh like I said, I wish I could get into we're gonna we're gonna get back to this tribe again and we're gonna go into detail about different clans. Not in this episode, so I'm just kind of doing like a, a brief overview. Mm-hmm. I guess a brief a one hour overview. <laughs> <laughs> but these bentwood boxes, they're so awesome, and these people are amazing wood carvers. Cool. So these boxes have these intricate designs all over them. They're painted beautifully. So they would give those, they would give broken copper strips, woven cedar black baskets, canoes, and ulechen oil, which is like a fish oil. Mm-hmm. In the 1900s, they would give Hudson Bay blankets, dressers, copper bracelets, carvings, and now, here, here you go, flour and sugar. Ooh. Well, you can see the introduction of colonists, because yeah. that's when... You start corrupting the food chain right there is oil and or flour and sugar. And then they would also give the fish oil again. And in the 2000s, towels and fabrics, laundry baskets, silver jewelry, T-shirts with crest designs on them, and flour, sugar, coffee, and also more fish oil. Hmm. They would acquire all this wealth during this time. But like we said, to most people, being wealthy meant being rich and having lots of money, which can help you acquire valuable possessions and property. But for them, the wealthiest people were those who could not only accumulate stuff, but also give the most away yeah. at a potlatch. And it was a sign of their ability to do so, which made them wealthy. So they really enjoyed giving away every – so they would get as much stuff as they can just to give it away because it – it shows how wealthy you are as a family, as a culture, and you're helping other people too. Because some people might be, not be able to give as much, mm-hmm. but they're going to receive something. Yeah. So they would do these amazing dances and they would have all these different, um, all their regalia and all this stuff. So their regalia would include masks, ceremonial robes, headdresses, and other symbolic items. They would represent ancestral figures, animals, supernatural beings, embodying spiritual connections and cultural significance. So there's a, they have a Thunderbird, Thunderbird mask. That's so cool. That when they do this potlatch um, ceremony mm-hmm. in the dance, they have one of these masks. And like I read earlier, they they use this mask. And when they're dancing, they, the mask opens. Mm-hmm. And when it opens, it shows the human face because this is another shapeshifter. I didn't really know that Thunderbirds were kind of shapeshifters. I thought they were just some giant bird. Yeah, I didn't really then, know that either. Um, I guess was it Pontiac decided they were going to make a car out of it. <laughs> and then I don't know. <laughs> Is it Pontiac, Pontiac Thunderbird? I think it is. I think so. Pontiac doesn't exist anymore, so who cares? <laughs> Maybe not to <laughs> it you. Was a, it was a GTO. No. <laughs> so we're going to get into some of the some of the artwork because these people, like I said, amazing art. They were amazing artists. They're still amazing artists. If you look at some of their things now, you're like, how? I mean, you know me. I'm probably one of the best artists on the planet. <laughs> oh, yeah. Like, Hands down. I mean... When you draw something, Gabe, I look at it and I just scoff. I'm it's just like, oh, disgusting. Amateur how, hour at the... How primitive. <laughs> hmm. 
let me get to my 30-year-old scotch, take a sip, wash my mouth out, and then have a swig of brandy, because <laughs> very primitive. Exactly. Um, no, I'm awful, guys. I could draw a stick, and it's not doesn't even look like a stick. You know, what is that, an L? Uh, uh, what is it, a leg? It's called a toe. abstract art. A toe beam? Po- toe beam? Is, it, is it a toe beam? Is this some grippers? Yeah. I don't know. And Gabe's over there like, hey, let me draw something. And then all of a sudden you're like, how did you just draw that with like two rocks, a stick, some rubber bands, and some glue? And you're all, Ugh. <laughs> like this. And then you draw another one. And I'm like, oh. <sighs> like this. Makes me sad. <laughs> but these people, they're they're amazing. They're known for their wood carving. So their wood carvings, their totem poles, their masks, regalia, a lot of it's wood. And it has a bunch of, it has their family crests on them, which are the different clans. They all have their different crests. Mm-hmm. So the totem poles have these like crazy intricate designs on them for of ancestral figures, animals, and part of their um, creation story, just any anything they believe in their history or their oral history. So it could be a, a supernatural being that that is only known to them mm-hmm. or that is well known, but they're also going to be on the totem pole and they all have special meanings. They the totem pole it is a towering monument of complex visual records of their family history and it illustrates their stories, conveys relationships or expresses their beliefs and experiences. And like we said, when they would come to these, uh, these ceremonies, they would have all these totem poles on the beach. And those were like the welcoming totem poles. Yeah. So they would see them, they knew what they meant. And then they would yell out to the chief. He would sing a song, welcoming them to his, to his village. And then everybody has a good time. They feast and have a great, wonderful giving away ceremony. Yeah, it's so cool. Their crests are usually associated with a particular animal, such as the eagle, raven, bear, wolf, or killer whale. Oh, the killer! <laughs> they have a lot of yeah. They have a lot of killer whale things that are like these drawings and depictions. And they're so freaking awesome. They're depicted in artwork and regalia. They symbolize the connection between individuals, their families, and their spiritual guardians because they do have spiritual guardians. Mm-hmm. Their art is highly symbolic and carries profound meaning. So colors, patterns, and designs all uh, convey specific messages related to the natural world, ancestral stories, personal experience, and cultural teachings. So many designs are considered sacred and are passed down throughout generations, carrying the collective wisdom and values to the community. So a different way how they draw or do like a little swoop or something and whatever color it is and the patterns, because we'll post pictures and you'll see like... The killer whale doesn't just look like a, a whale. No, it's real intricate. Black with little white, and and it's almost like the t- like the fin. Like the fins are a specific part, mm-hmm. and it almost looks like a puzzle piece, if you will. Yeah, different designs embodied in a specific outline, and all the different colors and the way they draw, the way they carve, the, the everything. It it all symbolizes these different stories, teachings, all this uh, sacred. It's all sacred to them. And they pass it down to their family. That's amazing. So these people can literally go up to different totem poles and see the designs and they could read the history on it. Mm -hmm. So they also have like, now they have like contemporary art where they use like wood, metal, textiles, paintings, printmaking, jewelries to express their culture and contemporary belief. Many artists still have traditional techniques though, and they still use the same styles of their drawings or artwork or whatever, the same designs cool because of their new reinsurgence of their cultural beliefs they're having this really cool art 
um, revitalization where you have these young artists that are just, they're just so enthralled in their, in traditional, the traditional way of, of making art. I was watching videos of this guy doing a totem pole and he's using the same tools and he is just, I don't know how, I don't know how these people do it. Like it just comes natural to them. It's almost like they're one with their tools mm-hmm. with the, with the wood too. It's, it's amazing. Like Edward Scissorhands. It is like Edward Scissorhands. I was just thinking <laughs> when I was talking about them, I was like, it's like Edward Scissorhands. Except they don't give people haircuts. Or cut hedges. Or cut hedges. <laughs> or shape ice. So not like Edward Scissorhands. Or lived in a tower or an old broken house. Hmm. And then, quote unquote, died. He died. He didn't die. No, he didn't die. <laughs> Spoiler, he didn't die. <laughs> oh man, I was about to watch that movie too. So all of these different things are their source of pride and identity for the culture. So they also have another ceremony called the Hamat Sa ceremony. It's also called the Cannibal Dance. Oh, this powerful and highly sa- uh, sensitive ceremony is performed by individuals who portray the mythical uh, figure of the cannibal spirit. It symbolizes the transformation and rebirth of a young person into adulthood. So it's known as a, a cannibal's dance or the initiation ceremony. Hmm. It's a ritual that they do to help um, to transition. Okay. So the ceremony is a rite of passage for young individuals who are initiated into adulthood. It marks their transition from childhood to adulthood, and it is seen as a transformative experience. These ceremonies involve intensive spiritual and physical preparation lasting for several months or even years. So you think being a kid is hard today, man, you got to put in work. Yeah. Nothing compared to back then. No, imagine studying for years to be an adult, to be considered an adult. Yeah. I still fail fail as an adult sometimes. And I'm, (laughs) we all do. uh, And I'm 38 tax evasion. This no, Allegedly. Hey, allegedly. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> so the cannibal spirit is a central figure of the ceremony known as Box Box Walunu Kusui. The mythical being is depicted as a wild, uncontrollable uh, creature with an insatiable appetite for human flesh. Now, during the ceremony, initiated individuals portray this cannibal spirit through a specific mask and wearing the regalia. Hmm. The ceremony holds deep symbolic meaning. It represents the overcoming of personal fears, challenges, and conquering one's inner demons. The assertion of control over one's desires and instincts. It is believed that by embodying the cannibal spirit and undergoing a symbolic feast, individuals gain spiritual power and strength. So when it's cannibal, it's it's a cannibal spirit that is you're trying to fight yourself, right? So yeah. you you have to learn how to as an adult, you have to understand how to control your your desires and instincts. Mm-hmm. So it's just symbolism. It's symbolism. Yeah. If you're going to eat all day you're, and you're not going to exercise, you're going to be fat. <laughs> Facts. If you're just going to if you can't control your um your your craving, your uh, your desires. If you're going to drink a lot, you're probably going to have health issues. Mm-hmm. You're you're not going to be a good father. You're not going to be a good mother. You're not going to be good just good human being if you drink that much. You have to learn how to control yourself. Right. So during this ceremony, it's how to control yourself, how to be strong. I know. Um, <laughs> I know. Uh, I had a friend, and he had um, psilocybin mushrooms. Oh, okay. <laughs> And he was asking me about it, and he goes, well, what do you think? And I go, no, nah, it's pretty cool. 
And he goes, well, what do you think I should do? So allegedly he had psilocybin <laughs> mushrooms. Um, so I said, well, I said, here's the, pro- here's the thing with that. Depending on what your headspace is in, it's depending on what you're going to see. Right. And also if you take too much and you're in the wrong headspace, you're going to have your demons come mm-hmm. after you. Because it's one of those things where you you start getting in your own head, and then everything you've ever done comes to the surface, and then now you're that lock. How I picture it is a little boy locked in a closet with one little spotlight on you, and you can't see anything else in the room. Yeah. Scary. And every one of your fears and everything that um, that you're ashamed of, everything that's holding you back as a human, it's going to come out after you. Which sounds terrifying. Yeah. But then the next day when you wake up, you feel like a whole lift weight has been lifted off of you. It's the same thing like what I hear uh, people when they do ayahuasca. Mm-hmm. It's like it's like the same thing where they feel like I could accomplish anything now. They're happier. They, they feel like there's a weight that's been lifted off of them. I know they're doing trials for ketamine, psilocybin, and there's another psychotro- uh, like psych- psychotropic drug that they're doing for um, therapy. Okay. Yeah. Because it really does in the right setting in the right, I think your you know, environment atmosphere, too, yeah, where you're, where you're the at. environment, everything, it helps you overcome these, overcome these uh, feelings and regret. And um, I mean, past experiences, I mean, hell PTSD, everything. Mm-hmm. So I'm not, they, they didn't do this, but I'm just saying like, this is something that you have to fight as an adult mm-hmm. And certain things can help. Certain things can make it a lot worse, but you have to control yourself as an adult. And this is part of the ceremony. Yeah. They have intricate dances, chants, performances that bring the cannibal spirit to life. And the participants wearing the regalia, they wear the regalia, including masks, uh, cedar bark capes, and bear claw necklaces. These dances are performed to uh, these dances and performances communicate important cultural teachings, stories, and their connection to the spiritual world. The ceremony is highly secretive and sacred to the people. The details and rituals associated with the ceremony are closely guarded, and they're shaled. So this is like a, a brief kind of overview, but they don't go into detail. And like they they know everyone they know their dances, mm-hmm. but we're not going to show you how to do the dance. Right. This is for them. This is for you. Yeah. We're not going to show you how why this happens. We're just going to kind of give you a overview. The uh, secrecy reflects the deepest respect and reverence of the spiritual significance and ceremony. They continue to be practiced by some communities today. They still do the ceremony. It serves as a vital means of cultural revitalization. Like I said, they're trying to revitalize, so they're going to start going through all the old things that they used to do and then bring it back up because they want to hold on to their roots. Yeah. I think I read that only 3% of their population speaks their language man it's so little yeah well ours is uh what point ours is so small too point one percent or point oh one percent it's something crazy it's really awesome that they actually have enough people who still speak the language and remember these ceremonies and how they are practiced to revitalize them mm-hmm. so they were fishing in marine culture because they live there right on the coast yeah their fishing was a primary source of sustenance for their livelihood they have a deep understanding of the marine environment and engage in practices such as salmon fishing, clam digging, seaweed harvesting. They have a rich fishing and marine culture that is tied to the marine resources along the northwest coast where they live. So fishing has been a vital means of substance for the people for thousands of years. They have developed sophisticated fishing techniques and practices to harvest various species of fish, including salmon, herring, halibut, cod, and shellfish. The Kwakwakwak 
closely monitored the natural cycles of, and seasonal patterns of fish migration to determine the optimal times of fishing. During specific fishing seasons, such as salmon, herring, and halibut, they have specific times of the year when they are most abundant and accessible. So they knew that when it's just like here in California, halibut season is um, halibut and salmon season are there's a short window, yeah, and they know it. So I know the local guys out here they'll they'll go out and do like a quick pass. So they'll go out for two days mm-hmm. and they'll monitor all the fish, and then if it looks like it's going to be a good season, they'll come back and go for a week. We got it open, yeah, and then they'll do a week trip, and then they'll come back, and then if it's still if they're still slaying them, then we're like, all right, we got maybe like another week. So then they'll book, but it, it's like last minute booking. Mm-hmm. Because they don't want you to go out there, pay hundreds of dollars, then all of a sudden you just come back skunked. Yeah. Because then everyone gets all there. salty about that, right? They're like, oh, we wasted our time. Oh, yeah. And I've heard a lot of people talk trash about that, too. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so they employ a, a variety of fishing techniques to catch a fish. They include nets, traps, weirs, and uh, hooks. Each technique is tailored to target the specific type of fish. Now, salmon was a very big type of fish in their culture. Because it has cultural significance. Mm. And their fishing practices reflected this importance. Traditional methods for catching salmon included dip nets, drift nets, and fish wheels. Canoes are often used to navigate rivers and coastal waters, allowing fishermen to access prime salmon fishing grounds. They recognize the importance of maintaining healthy fish populations for future generations, so they never overfished. Yeah. They, they would practice sustainable fishing techniques, right? Yeah, they would yeah, make sure you're leaving some fish for the for nature. You don't want to take everything out of there. We don't understand that nowadays, but now it's like take everything and they're like, "Oh no. no. Where did all our fish go?" And they're all like, "Huh?" And then there's oh, all and then old Jack's over there and he has a stack full of fish bones. Yeah. Damn it, Jack. Come on. So once the fish were caught, they would employ various preservation and processing methods to store the fish for harvest. They would smoke them, dry them, ferment them, and they were used to preserve the fish for long periods of time, allowing them to be consumed throughout the year. So they didn't have to keep constantly fishing. When you get salmon seasons open, you go get all your salmon, it comes back. You're like, well, all right, how do we like, preserve it, smoke it, um, mm-hmm. ferment it, and now we can eat it throughout the entire year until next salmon season. Yeah. It was also often a communal activity. Fishermen would share their catch with the community, ensuring that everyone had access to the, to the food. The practice reflects a cultural value of sharing in the community and giving because that's what their culture is all about is giving. Mm-hmm. During the fishing trips, they would hold cultural teachings and valuable lessons. Elders would pass down traditional knowledge about fishing practices, including the appropriate times, locations, and methods to harvest fish. These teachings were uh, used to emphasize the importance of respecting the fish, respecting the waterways, and respecting the broader nat- natural environment. Oh, that's amazing. I know. I don't, I don't know why we can't do that today. Everyone just like take as much as you can and then don't give anything back. And yeah. There's so much greed and just it, all about, all about me. It's amazing. Like I, like we have a huge homeless problem in California. Well, homeless problem in general around the United States, especially after the, pand- after the pandemic, we just had it like yeah. crazy. Right. And a lot of people are really mean to homeless people and I get it. I mean, um, a lot of people treat, think of them as eyesores, but when I see homeless people, I see what the government used to look at us as, right? Lesser thans. And that's what a lot of people see as lesser thans, right? So I see that other people see them like that and I'll give to them as much as I can. And I get it. Life sucks. But you know what? We're one of the richest countries, if not the richest country in the world. And you're telling me the government, especially in California, our stupid idiot freaking governor has 
increased taxes so much and they have so much money for homeless people and they haven't solved anything. So where's that money going? Are they just, they're spending it on their campaign. Oh, so I can get reelected. So I can tell you again, Oh, we're going to help the homeless. No, you're not going to help the homeless. And a lot of them are just stuck. Like they're trying to find work, but they don't have, you know, they're not clean. They don't have a suit and tie. Who's going to hire someone that lives on the streets? I hate when people say, well, they need to go find a job. All right. Tell me right now. It's hard. I work in construction. I'm going to hire this guy. Well, he's an able-bodied man or an able-bodied woman. I'm going to hire them. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, they're they they stink. They're not they don't they can't clean themselves. And construction's right. dirty work. Okay, they don't have tools, but you want them to buy their own tools. Now, not only that, you can't even contact them. Yeah, some they don't have a phone. They don't have an uh, address to send mail to or something. So they're just like they're stuck. And everything nowadays is online. So if you don't have access to the internet, yeah, you, you, how, can. you can't even apply on paper. Like nine out of 10 times when you go apply somewhere, if you walk in, they're like, oh, well, go to our website, do this, this. You can't even ask for an application. And the government has a chance to fix it and to show that they actually give a crap, but they don't. And that's why I said we can learn a lot from these people because if everyone did help out each other, then we wouldn't have those problems. I mean, they had – I saw – I think it was in Seattle – I think it was was in Oregon or Washington. They had these communal gardens, which are great ideas. And then all of a sudden, oh, someone yeah, just definitely. went and just took everything out of them. Yeah. There's people online I see. There's a guy on TikTok. He has a a communal uh, egg coop. So he put, puts a bunch of eggs in it on this like dirt road, and people can go. And he just leaves a jar, and it's like, leave whatever you want. Leave a dollar, leave 50 cents. Whatever you and can afford. And a lot afford. of times he'll go. Huh? Whatever you can afford. Yeah. And, every, and sometimes he'll go, and someone will take all the money, or someone will just take all the eggs. Like right at once, mm-hmm. like he'll put it out and go check an hour later and they're all gone. Like somebody just took it all for themselves. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of hard to do stuff like that. It is. I mean, we just need to show each other that we care because we're all people yeah. on the same planet and we're not going to be here that long. So, I mean, why make it a crappy place to live? The honor system. We need the honor system. Oh, man. <laughs> we had, I shook a man's hand and looked in his eyes and knew <laughs> he was a true man. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> oh, I can believe him. <laughs> So going back over the salmon, how they, they like salmon was super significant um, and sacred. It was a sacred resource to these people. Uh, the, the view of salmon is a sacred gift from the creator and believed in the reciprocal relationship between humans and salmon. So there's rituals and ceremonies that are performed to honor the salmon and to ensure an abundance for future generations. So it wasn't thinking about yourself. It was thinking about others, like we said. Right. They had oral histories. They had songs about the salmon, symbolizing their abundance and nutrients, like nourishment for their life. They closely observed the life cycle of the salmon, which typically including hatching in freshwater streams, migrating to the ocean to mature, and returning to the natal rivers to spawn. They understand the ecological significance of the journey and the interconnectedness of salmon with the surrounding ecosystem. They employed various fishing techniques. Like I said, they had a bunch of traps. They had drift nets. They had, um, uh, I think one of them said they had cedar nets. They had spears, or some would call them harpoons because they were very large spears. Mm-hmm. And they would do it in respect and in accordance with traditional protocols. So they had they had rules for fishing. You couldn't just go out there and just start slapping all the salmon. You had to go out there and do it the right way. Yeah. Salmon ceremonies and rituals are integral to their culture. The first catch of the season is often celebrated with a ceremony to honor and to give thanks for the sam- to the salmon spirits. Potlatch gatherings may feature feasts where salmon is served as a central dish, symbolizing the abundance and prosperity of the village. 
They actively engage in conservation efforts, advocating for responsible fishing practices, ha- uh, habitation restorations, like now, now they do this, mm-hmm. and yeah. the uh, protection of waterways to ensure the sustainability of salmon populations. Sometimes when they would go out there and, and fish, they would use these canoes, and their canoes were crafted from large cedar logs, which these experts would hollow them out and shape them using stones and bone tools. And these canoes were designed to navigate various water conditions, including rivers, lakes, and coastal waters, allowing fishermen to reach fishing grounds and transport their catch. And these canoes, like I said, they wouldn't only make just a simple canoe. They got to put some flair on it, right? You got to be like, I got a canoe, oh, yeah. but I'm going to put my clan, uh, uh, I'm going to put my clan little stamp on it. So they're over there shaping <laughs> it and putting these designs on it that are really cool. They would use the nets that were made from plant fibers or animal sinew. You remember animal sinew? What that is? It's the tendons from the animals. Oh yeah. Where they yeah, would yeah. they would um, they would dry them, or when they were wet, mm-hmm. they would pull them and pull them, and pull them, and then they would tie them around. And once they dried, they would they were tighten. Just like super strong. Super tight. Too. They'd make yeah. you know some tribes would make bows out of them, and well, they would use them to make nets to make these really strong nets. Cool. And they were set to intercept fish as they migrated through the rivers and coastal areas. Dip nets were used to catching fish close to the water surface, while uh, the sinew nets were employed for surrounding and capturing larger big schools of fish. Their traps were and weirs were constructed in rivers to direct the fish into a confined area for easier harvesting. So they would redirect mm-hmm. them with these uh, weirs and traps. The structures were used making rocks, logs, and branches, forming barriers, and funneling the guided fish into traps. This method allowed them to catch the fish during spawning runs. The hooks were made from bones, shells, or sharpened wood. They were utilized by the fishermen to catch for individual, instead of like how they do like big groups. This is how they mm-hmm. just catch one fish. They would make the hooks, obviously. The hooks were attached to lines made from plant fibers or more of the animal sinew. So they would also use that as their fishing line. And they were often braided and could be really strong, enabling fishermen to catch really large salmon and halibut. We talked about halibut before. Halibut gets up to like 100 and something or 200 pounds. They're huge. Yeah, they can be really big. So when they would go after seals or sea lions, because they would, they would go after larger. Then that's when I said the harpoons. They have these huge giant Mm -hmm. harpoons. They consisted of sharp point attached to a wooden shaft with a line secured to it. And these harpooners were super strong because... If you ever try to use something like that and go through and those seal skins, they're super strong. That's why people would use seal skin oh, yeah. for all kinds. They'd use seal skin pouches. Oh, they'd use it as their leather and stuff. And it's crazy strong. Mm-hmm. So you heard me talk about the fish wheels. So fish wheels were uh, devices that were used by the people to capture salmon during the upstream migration. Wooden wheels with attached baskets were placed in rivers and the salmon swam against the current. They'd be scooped up by these traps in the baskets. And then the fish wheels increased the fishing efficiency and allowed for a large scale of harvesting. So they could put these wheels out there. And as the salmon are swimming back, they just get caught up in these baskets on this big wheel. (laughs) That's smart. So they would also go after uh, shellfish, clams, mussels, oysters, crabs. And they would do the same thing. Everything that they fished, they all, they played like, uh, they, they always practiced, uh, sustainability. So they didn't go, they didn't try to take everything. They just tried to make sure that there was enough for the, for the next generation, for the next fishing season, for the next time. Because as soon as you yeah. take everything and you eat everything, well, now you're going to die. Right. So yeah, they would just take just the right amount. So also on their canoes, they would, 
they would paint them with vibrant and symbolic um, designs. Natural pigments derived from minerals and plants were used to create uh, the designs of the canoe's ex- exterior. The designs often represented ancestral connections, clan indications, and stories associated with their people. The canoes were propelled by paddles using specific, specifically crafted cedar paddles. The paddles had long handles and wide blades, allowing for efficient, uh, like an efficient, uh, what do you call it, propulsion through the water. So they would just like, mm-hmm. I'm not a, I'm not a paddleman, but <laughs> <laughs> the steersman positioned at the stern guided the canoes directions to maintain balance using a steering paddle. Canoes had significant cultural practices and importance because they were used for transportation, trading expeditions, fishing trips, and ceremonial practices. So when they were on the move, they didn't have a car. They had a canoe. And canoe's journey played a central role in cultural practices, including the potlatches, like we talked about. They were allowed to, like, communicate with other tribes and other uh, clans. They were in shared, shared celebrations and displayed the wealth of the people. So if you had an awesome big canoe, then it showed how wealthy you were. And then if they knew how wealthy you were, that means that you could give a lot. The canoes represented more than just a means of transportation. They were considered living entities with spiritual significance. Canoes were believed to have a guardian spirit, to have a guardian spirit, and rituals and ceremonies were performed to honor and protect the vessels. Canoes uh, remain an essential symbol for their cultural heritage, representing the connection to the land, water, and ancestral ancestral traditions. They would harvest the cedar trees, and cedar bark is harvested and processed to create a very variety of tools and materials, including fishing nets and ropes and clothing and baskets. Then they'd use the actual cedar tree to create the um, the canoe. Mm-hmm. And today, a lot of the community, they're still engaged in marine practices. They maintain their deep connection to the land and water, and they still try to practice sustainable fishing. And they're also lobbying for other, for like the Canadian government to also keep like their waters clean and not have it pushed, you know, directional changes and overfished right. and all that stuff because it still means a lot to the people. Today, the Kwakwake Wak people. They continue to reside in their ancestral territories while also adapting to contemporary way of life. They're actively engaged in their cultural revitalization efforts. Uh, resource management, like I said, they're, these guys are like really big on resource management, if I haven't said it earlier, like 14 times. And <laughs> asserting their rights as indigenous people to protect their lands, waters, which are really big, and their cultural heritage. So that was, you know... Uh, Brief overview of just like a generalization of the Kwakwakaewak mm-hmm. people, because we're yeah. going to get into in future episodes, we're going to get into their different clans because that's also important. And it goes into really big detail and, and if different clan had different, you know, ways of living similar, but different ways of living. So we just wanted to go right. over that and next week we're going to go over the Thunderbird, which is also oh, yeah. the... There's so many different tribes. So Jibwe believe in the Thunderbird. Thunderbird. You have yeah. Uh, there's a lot. There's just so many different. But I just picked them because we haven't really talked about them as much, or we haven't talked about. Mm-hmm. I feel like we haven't been to Canada for a while, and I hear the people. The people want more Canada, so I'm going to give them more Canada. Yeah, especially this month since it's uh, all in uh, Indigenous Peoples Day just passed for Canada a few days ago. So it seems appropriate. Awesome. 
So that was our show today. Hope you guys liked it. If you guys did like it, please remember to tell others, tell friends, because it really helps us out. Also, Mm -hmm. if you would please follow us on any of the podcasting platforms that you have, if you just click follow on it, that really helps us. And then if you want to go one step further, go back down, go down to the bottom, hit rating, give us a five-star review, leave a comment. And if you want a free sticker and you're ready that far, screenshot (laughs) it, send it to info at behillnetwork.com with your mailing address and your alias and we'll shoot you out a free sticker like I, like I said before we send out like three or four stickers so you'll get you'll get a, gr- yeah. a group of stickers more and, than one and sticker. that helps us out and then we get to give you guys something for free yeah and everyone likes free stuff also please follow us on all of the instagrams and social medias and all the stuff <laughs> go to instagram tiktok uh youtube at indigenous underscore tales we post a lot of stuff updates show announcements sometimes we're doing like you know, sometimes somebody's sick or, you know, you'll get everything first. So if we're going to do like a highlight episode or a Patreon bonus mm-hmm. episode that we're going to give you guys for free, it's always going to be on Instagram and TikTok. So go ahead and find it on our stories. YouTube, we're yeah. going to do little highlights, videos, and clips, five to 10 minutes of the show. And then you can listen to the rest of the show right here. And yes. if you want to go to our merch store, go to indigenoustales.threadless.com. And sign up for the mailing list on there. They'll give you a coupon code and you'll get some, you know, you'll get a discount. So that's pretty cool. And when you do that, they'll also inform you on when we have sales. So it'll just go straight to your email and you'll know that we have sales. So you can get on the sales. We have, usually we get like $15 shirts, which is, I mean, mm. come on, can't beat that. $15 shirts. They're yeah, really, super cheap. They're really cool shirts. Really good quality. This one says, this is Indian land. It's pretty <laughs> awesome. Gabe has one that says, trust the government because Ooh. don't trust the government. Yeah. Yeah, well, that's all we have for you guys today. So I hope you guys enjoyed it. And until next time, I'm Joseph. And I'm Gabriel. You'll be remembered by the tracks you leave. And remain close to the great spirit. That's a hard word to say, man. He said it. Yeah, that's what they have to say at the end. You got to go. The guy goes, and then if you want to put a little flair on it. (laughs) So that's what I did. Put some flair on it. Okay. All right. If you're not spiritually connected to the earth and understand the spiritual 